sorry, the review of Anti-Oedipus <clears throat> by Deleuze and Guattari. Um, we're in chapter two, section five, in the middle of that chapter. <clears throat> Today is uh, 5, 26, 22. So were there, were there any questions or commented, comments on what we read yesterday? I guess one of the one of the main things that we talked about was foreclosure. And I, I think I was on the Lacanian reading group and they mentioned what foreclosure was, which was when you put something completely out of your mind rather than pressing it. I mean, one thing I was just struck by in this section was how clear the metaphor of the, the parents uh, and the as wrestlers on page 96. I just thought that really kind of hit home how the relationality of the parents kind of disavows any, you know, ultimate closing of the Oedipal Triangle. And I thought that that was a really nice metaphor for understanding that. Now, is that um, uh, in the paragraph? that starts, we believe. Yeah, I think I might've actually just jumped a paragraph. Sorry about that. I yeah, that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. Cause I didn't remember that metaphor, but, uh, but, oh, okay. So uh, yeah, I said, it's precisely this pairing of the parental figures with agents of another nature, their locking embrace similar to wrestlers that keeps the triangle from closing up again and being valid in itself from claiming to express or represent this, this different nature of the agents that are in question in the unconscious itself. Okay, so wrestlers, that is the metaphor that um, is at the center of critique of dialectical reason. Uh, Sartre. Sartre uses wrestlers the wrestling match, and he kind of analyzes the wrestling match um, and, uh, you know, talks about how, you know, there's all of these different roles. There are the wrestlers, there are the agents, there are the trainers, there are the, there is the audience, that there's a whole context there in the wrestling match. Yeah, he was, he was deeply, uh, admir he, he admired the, the sport of boxing pretty deeply. Uh, so the, the, yeah, I think that's a good way to use that. Oh, oh, was it boxing rather than wrestling? Yeah, I still, I still think that it applies. I still think that, that what he has to say in CDR applies pretty well over here. Oh, so okay. I, I think, I think that's a good, that's a good line to draw. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. I, I got the wrong <laughs> it's, one. It's so pedantic. Don't worry about it. So, uh, yeah, but I, I always like that part of, uh, critique of dialectical reason because, uh, because it's all about the uh, the relationship between the system and the you know the meta system, everything around it, uh, or the general economy uh, in relation to the restricted economy. It's not just the it's not just the fighters, you know, which you know would be the uh, you know the two dialectical uh, elements that are in conflict. Um, there's a whole context for that conflict. And, uh, you know, uh, Sartre does a good job of, of pointing that out.
I think I think maybe I, I hit on wrestlers because when I was a kid, my dad liked to go to wrestling matches, and he took me there instead of boxing matches. I think though that the that the social organization of those spaces are are almost identical. Um, yeah, and, yeah. I, and I think I think you see the role that CDR plays in in Antiedipus um, throughout. I think later in the text uh, they'll specifically cite groups in fusion which is a concept that's central um, to, to critique of dialectical reason. So, oh, 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 they do cite that? Oh, that's great. Yeah, much later, though, uh, like around 220, I think, in the edition we're using. So, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I can't wait to get there because that's my, you know, well, you know, my background is sociology. So, oh, cool. Uh, You know, so so I was always interested in the sociological aspects, and uh, critique of dialectical reason was like perfect in that. Mm-hmm. And uh, the uh, what's interesting is that uh, I, I take the fused group as being an example of wild being, mm-hmm. and uh, and also, you know, I wrote a paper. I think it was the second one in this series of uh, papers about anti Oedipus and in which I try to show that uh, there's a connection between Simondon and Critique of Dialectical Reason by wow. Sartre, uh, because they they have, uh, it's it, Sartre's Critique of Dialectical Reason starts where Simondon ends. Simondon, Simondon ends with the, with the collective. Mm-hmm. Sartre starts with the collective, and then out, then out of the collective, he uh, the the um, you know the fused group forms, and then the uh, pledge group comes out of that, and then the um, the pledge that was the word I was looking for in a conversation about about uh, Sartre yesterday. Yeah, so okay. the pledge group, and then the uh, uh, the organized organized group. You know where the group self organizes, <clears throat> like we've done here. Yeah, no. If you're if you're looking, if anybody's like confused about what Kent's talking about, uh, William uh, McBride wrote a uh, a great book on on Sartre's politics and his political writings. That basically is just a conceptual breakdown of everything present in texts like uh, Search for a Method and the broader critique of dialectical reason. And it even goes a little bit into existentialism as a humanism and being in nothingness about the politics laden in there. So I'll I'll put that title in there if anybody's. Yeah, I'd like to see that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, recently, I've been trying to read some of the background material on critique of dialectical reason. But um, but then after the organization, then there's the institution where where things get instituted and then uh, you know made into institutions and then uh, you know. Uh, Cornelius Castoriadis um, writes the imaginary institution of society, where he he talks about institutions' in relationship to to wild. So um, so that connection to CDR here, I think, is uh, you know quite significant. So any any other any other points? You'd like to make 
about the reading or anything else in the book? I mean, I thought in this first paragraph on page 90 that, that we started with in case, in this case, as in many others, um, you know, they're going through the uh, imaginary, symbolic, and real, and bringing them into bringing them to bear in their analysis. Yeah, I think this is where someone with a a good understanding of of um, Lacan's treatment of of the Oedipal would be uniquely helpful because I know that on page like 96, they finally make the assertion like there is no Oedipal triangle. Oedipus is always open and in an open social field. So how they get from from um, from uh, the utilization of the Lacanian concept of foreclosure to essentially that uh, uh, placement of uh, of uh, the Oedipal in, or that the open triangle on the open social field is, is one thing that, that I'm particularly confused with, mm -hmm. uh, that I still struggle with. And I think, I think one of the things I thought about after we read yesterday was that, and I think I mentioned it briefly, was, uh, you know, I think the reason they're focusing on foreclosure is because it's the more radical of the two between repression and foreclosure. Because I think uh, repression is like forgetfulness, whereas foreclosure is like oblivion. So oblivion is much more uh, a much more radical uh, rendering of something unconscious. Just can you expand on the rendering of the unconscious? There, I I, I think I'm following you, but I'm not exactly sure. Well, okay, so so one of the things I liked about this book when I read it a long time ago <laughs> was um, they 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 somewhere in there they say something like um, if you're conscious of it at all, then it's not the end. So then when you when you um, when you look at Freud, he's got all this pre-conscious stuff, and um, and then Jung. Um, young is full of things that are that people are conscious of, you know, like archetypes in religion. Um, and so, and so that that's not really the unconscious if there's there's any consciousness of it as at all. And and one book that I, I'd like to mention in in this regard is uh, Michel Henri. Uh, the essence of manifestation. So, in that book, Henri kind of attacks uh, Heidegger uh, and what he calls Heidegger's ontological monism. Because, you know, even though he says uh, that Heidegger says that uh, being is a combination of ready to hand and present, what I call pure being and process. Um, it's one thing, but it 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 in it there's manifestation. Whereas, uh, and so Heidegger doesn't 
allow the possibility that there is something that is never meant. And that's what Henri calls the essence of manifestation, thing which is never meant. So that's, that's the radical unconscious. And it seems like Deleuze and Guattari, you know, they want to differentiate between the transcendent uh, radical unconscious and the transcendental radical. So the transcendental is, is the passive syntheses that we know are there because we're given things whole in our conscious. So we know we know we know that we know that the passive syntheses are there because things suddenly pop whole into our consciousness. But the transcendent is, um, you know, the the actual workings that we don't know how 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 it works at all, and we don't really know what's going on. And even with brain imaging and stuff like that, we know what's happening. Um, within the brain to produce consciousness and then to produce these paths, passive syntheses that we experience. So, so I mean, basically, the, the upshot of this is that both in Freud and in Jung, there's these um, quasi-conscious elements that are not really unconscious. So, so Henry's Henry's work is, is is trying to define something like the unconscious of manifestation or being. And you see that operating here. I see that as the fundamental question behind this whole whole book is, okay. you know, uh, what is the what is the transcendent unconscious? Yeah. And what is this transcendental unconscious? No, I think I think sometimes the 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 phenomenological, but also like the Kantian elements of this text can sometimes be overlooked, and I think that's part of the reason why I'm often left confused um, because I don't iron those parts out uh, before diving into the on it. Uh, yeah, I just read a book called. Uh, I think it was called Kant, Deleuze, and the Architectonic, which is a Deleuzean interpretation of Kant, and it's a very good interpretation. It's really interesting. Um, but, I mean, you know, uh, <coughs> there's quite a few interpreters <coughs> that are trying to take it back, you know, what Deleuze is saying here, back to critique of pure reason. And, and in some ways, you can see this book as a kind of rewriting critique of pure reason. And you can see that in the fact that he's talking about these paralogisms, and that's, a, you know, one of the highlights of uh, critique of pure reason are the paralogisms of reason. But just because in this first paragraph, uh, it's dealing with imaginary, symbolic, and real, uh, I just like to mention this idea I had of a way of interpreting that, which uh, I don't know if it's right. I liked it, um, which was that. Well, one of the, one of the things I realized was that um, 
Sartre doesn't have any story about how the for itself arises out of the in itself, how self-consciousness arises out of just things. And so you can see Lacan's mirror stage as giving a story about that. And so then, in terms of the imaginary, symbolic, and real, you can say you can see that, uh, like in the child's development, at first, <clears throat> the you know the child is just living in their body, you know, like an animal, for instance. But but then, uh, so that's the real, and then, or reality with small r. But uh, then, um, then there's the mirror stage, in which the child recognizes itself in the mirror, and that's the imaginary. And then, and then you know they become linguistically competent in their natural language, and then that uh, that's like the symbolic. But it that doesn't account for the the the. Uh, the idea of the real as that which cannot be symbolized, that which cannot be imagined, which is a real with a capital R that Zizek talks about. Anyway, I just mentioned that interpretation because that's in this first paragraph that we read yesterday. So any other comments or Questions? Um, can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, I think what I would like to ask about this paragraph is that uh, what do they mean by the double bind in this paragraph specifically? Where is that in the paragraph about the double bind? They talk about the uh, the double bind. Um, Flinging from one pole to the other, and then oh. they keep on going talking about the imaginary and the real. And mm -hmm. I don't understand the message that is uh, flinging from one to the other. Well, I mean, I think we were interpreting one pole to the other being between father and mother, but when we were reading it yesterday, I got the idea that they, they meant something else. Um, but I wasn't sure what that was. It says the law of the double bind operates relentlessly, ruthlessly, flinging us from one pole to the other in such a way that what is foreclosed in the symbolic must reappear in the real in hallucinatory form. And then it says, but in this fashion, the entire historico-political theme gets interpreted as a constellation of Im imaginary identification. So I, I think those imaginary identifications are, you know, all of the all of the identifications that the schizophrenic would make with the hordes and the peoples moving across the landscape and so forth. Um, May they be talking about the deliriums the schizophrenic house? Well, I think that I think that's right. I think that when they're talking about 
uh, real in in a hallucinatory form, that that's the delirium. And what you know, what's foreclosed in the symbolic, which is that which is completely put out of mind, symbolic, and so is truly unconscious because it's lost in oblivion. I'd just like to mention that my favorite scene in that regard is from Zarathustra, where he comes down from the mountain and he goes and talks to the sea. That's a that's like a a really good example of that. I, I hate to put you on the spot, but can you expand a little bit on that? Um, okay, well, the reason I didn't say very much is that I don't know if I can remember it, but it's a beautiful, yeah. pa it's a beautiful passage where he goes from climbing the mountain where, uh, and which is also a beautiful passage, where he's mm -hmm. climbing the mountain and then there's a moment in which, uh, as he puts down his foot, the, the mountain comes up to meet it. Yeah. And so he's climbing. The mountain is being created as he's climbing. And then he talks okay. about how he's climbing over his own head. Okay. Yeah. No, which I, is I, kind I, of like the absurdity of transcendence, which is that, uh, you know, the whole idea of transcending yourself. And then from, from that scene, the next you know, after a while, the next scene is him going down to the sea and basically seeing the sea as never forgetting anything. And that, and that whatever, whatever's done on earth, whatever uh, atrocities are committed, that they leave their traces and that they're not forgotten. And so he, he, he talks about the sea as if it was memory remembering all of these things that were done that people tried to hide but but ultimately couldn't hide and the end come up again <clears throat> and so that's kind of like the oblivion you know even if you completely wipe out the traces of something still the traces of your wiping it out are still and so and so things do return from oblivion which is kind of like a return you know in the forgetfulness that's like the return of the repressed but there is a return from oblivion too for instance and a, a perfect example of that are the tablets on which gilgamesh was written they were totally lost and then through archaeology they found these tablets scattered all over the middle east and they pieced back together this the first epic that was written. So then our lit our we we got a source deeper than the Iliad and the Odyssey from our tradition that was totally lost in oblivion, but you know traces were still there on the tablets. We found those tablets, but but everyone had forgotten that it existed through history. And then, and then, by the way, uh, when they when they uh, unearthed those and put them together, they found out there was a reference to Noah and the flood it was in the Bible. So then everyone got interested in. Um, I'd like to go back to to um, the double bind for a moment. Sure. 
because um, there are two earlier sections where they talk about the double bind that I think can help here. Okay. Um, the first starts on page 78 and goes on to 79, um, where they formulate the second paralogism of psychoanalysis. They say there, um, here we have the second paralogism of psychoanalysis. In short, the double bind is none other than the whole of Oedipus. It is in this sense that Oedipus should be presented as a series or an oscillation between two poles. The neurotic identification and the internalization that is said to be normative. On either side is Oedipus, the double impasse. And if a schizo is produced here as an entity, this occurs for the simple reason that there is no other means of escaping the double, this double path. Where normality is no less blocked than neurosis, and where the solution offers no more of a way out than does the problem. Hence, the schizo's withdrawal to the body without organ. Yeah, so that makes it so the poles are the uh, normality and the uh, kind of perversion, the breaking of taboo. Is that, is that how you read that? Um, yeah. Well, it's. There's, there's another section, um, and this is the footnote on page 82, where they um, reference an article where they, of which they say, this article contains a perfect formulation of Oedipus as a double bind. And then they quote, the psychic life of a man unfolds in a sort of dialectical tension between two ways of living the Oedipus complex. One that consists in living it, living it and the other that consists in living according to the structures that might be called Oedipi. Experience also shows us that these structures are not foreign to the most critical phase of this complex. For Freud, man is definitively marked by this complex. It, constitu it constitutes both his grandeur and his misery. So living it would have been the normal life, but... The other one is the structural. They're saying it's the structures. That's interesting. Um, oh, well, in the in this in this formulation of the double bind. So, if we stay in the double bind, how does the double bind relate to foreclosure? Well, it's a good. Because, the, you know, they're saying, I mean, the implication that I get from what you just read is that they're saying there's just normally living within the Oedipus complex and not questioning. And then there is the breaking of that taboo, and, and which is kind of the extraordinary reaction to the double bind. But they're saying that that's structural. And the way you can see that is that, you know, what structures are, are all of the possibility. So all of the possibilities are, uh, you know, incest, you know, all of the, the aberrant behavior uh, that the Oedipal that the complex is trying to stamp out. You know, there's this whole thing of uh, you don't make laws against things that don't happen. <clears throat> 
So, so the fact that there is a taboo means that that does happen. And the, the problem is that that challenges the, 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 the whole patriarchal system is based on knowing who, who is the father of the child. So, you know, the whole idea of the incest taboo is to, uh, you know, yeah, it, it's not just, it's not just the, uh, you know, incest between brother and sister or brother uh, son and mother, but it's also part of that complex is the fact that there's marriage and there's the determination of who is the father of whatever children, so that you can differentiate between your children and, you know, the children of others. And patriarchy is, you know, founded on that principle. Which, which in, in matriarchy is not a thing. It's not the same. Because women stay with the father <coughs> in matriarchy. <coughs> and the husbands just come in for visits, and then it's the brother of the, of the, the mother that acts as father. So it's kind of a, a different kind of system. But how that relates to foreclosure, I just have no yeah on foreclosure so in the first in the first section that i read just before that they use as an example for the double bind the situation where the father says to the son go ahead criticize me but um strongly hints that all effective effective criticism or at least a certain type of criticism will be very unwelcome will be followed by punishment in some capacity so there would would foreclosure here be um ignoring this this uh this tension so well foreclosure is putting thing something completely out of mind and uh so that you so that you kind of forget that it was even an issue. Yeah, in, and, that uh, in, in that situation, uh, the demand is to to uh, to forget or completely um, deny the possibility of a certain kind of criticism. Uh, yeah, well, see, the thing is, this thing about criticism, that is the kind of thing that I think of as a double bond. This thing about the, the, the two poles of normality and, uh, and uh, abnormality, that is a kind of deeper kind of polarity, which is, is kind of like uh, the nihilistic opposite, you know, instead of, instead of, instead of a specific instance of contradiction. You know, double binds are basically contradictions. And that are kind of socially constructed within the family. And, uh, and so, uh, but, you know, basically they're saying that that leads to this situation where, well, 
I, I mean, I don't really know how to characterize it. It's kind of like if you if you do all the things that the superego tells you to do, then you don't have an interesting life, and, and because it's you're you're completely succumbing to normality. And then on the other hand, if you if you push all the boundaries and go beyond all boundaries, then that's kind of like the nihilistic opposite of nothing. There's too much happening. I don't know how to characterize these two poles you're talking about, but just trying. And so that that nihilistic situation that's produced by having a taboo in the first place um, is a deeper thing than just an individual contradiction, like your father saying, "Okay, go ahead and criticize me," but you know they've got they've got their fist <laughs> ready to punch you if you do something like that. I think double bind comes from that um, they say that foreclosure is possible, but it is not because in the all the poles of the two poles of the Oedipus, the, uh, you get to the same point, right? Even if it is internalized or it is forced upon you, you cannot escape it. So if you if you are all, uh, believing that you are passive, then they go on to tell that you are not in the example of egg. If you believe to think that you are passive, then uh, the foreclosure is not never possible. Hmm. Yeah, I don't, I, I, I don't quite know how to... Could, could, you, just, could you just say that again? What, um, how does that relate to foreclosure? I mean, um, they say that uh, if you escape something from in the symbolic, it reappears in the real. So that uh, if you think that if you are Oedipalized, um, it is something. But if you are not, then you are living in an Oedipal structure. So you cannot really escape this. So this is the contradiction in what I, what I understand in the limited sense. And then um, they go on to talk about the biological egg and how they thought that something was forced upon it, but it has the potentiality to be something else. So the structure or the possibilities of the structure was coming from within and not from forced upon itself. So um, it's, the biological egg part doesn't really relate to the foreclosure, but uh, I believe that uh, the idea of foreclosure comes from that something is outside of you instead of that you are in control of that. Think the foreclosure comes from something that is external, that you need to be oblivious to something that is external. But if all the possibilities are within yourself, or like you're an egg with uh, possibilities, then the foreclosure, uh, the term of foreclosure in my sense, doesn't make sense. Huh. Interesting. Well, I mean, you know that, uh, okay, what? what? There's these two terms that they have. One is incorporation, which means that you absorb something. And then there's another one, which I, I don't know what that term is. I keep forgetting it, which means that something comes in, but then you have to expel it again. Do you, does anyone know what that term is that's the opposite of uh, incorporation? Uh, expulsion. Well, maybe I don't know. I can't. Unfortunately, I can't remember. But it's a it's it's a psychological term for that difference. And it seems like you know 
that 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 might be what you're talking about the uh, foreclosure of internal things versus foreclosure of external things i mean that's probably you're probably right that is a thing um because because you know it's probably easier to ignore something in your environment in a certain sense than something that's welling up inside you yeah, I mean, um, they say that parental figures are not organizers, but rather inductors. So they are like something that signals something else. So maybe, yeah, foreclosure from inside is maybe, yeah, might be related to what I'm talking about. Yeah, well, th this, this point of uh, inductors versus organizers, um, You know that. So that that's like a uh, the inductors are like a field concept, where you're being influenced by things in your environment. But but say you're developing as a child, going through your developmental process, and then and then the people in your environment are are uh, you know say like reading books to a child. I mean, if no one ever reads a book to you, then, you know, your your view of reading is going to be different from if your parents read to you on a regular basis. You know, that that's kind of like one of the main indicators of whether, you know, how, how quickly a child is going to, <coughs> um, you know, uh, take on reading in school. Um, if the parents think it's important, they'll read to the child. So that's an that's kind of inductor for a certain kind of behavior, and you can see that you know, like parents who homeschool their kids, you know, the parents are acting as an organizer rather than rather than the child going off to school and interacting with a whole bunch of other people and then the parents are just kind of like home base for the child who's who's you know who's who's having the school experience rather than organizing the school experience. So I mean I, I think that's kind of like the difference between the inductors and organizers. Also I think maybe maybe it's also about um how Later in Antiedipus, they explain that um, the Oedipus, Oedipus is real, right? It's not that Freud and Lacan are imagining it, but it's also only possible under capitalism. And they're going to want to emphasize that um, <clears throat> that particular like familial formation um, is directly determined by the social formation. Um, that's very really big. Um, <clears throat> critique of even 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 Lacan as well. So maybe that's I don't know how it relates to foreclosure, but in terms of uh, the family as an inductor, um, it might be using the word in a different context. But my reading of it was just that the family is kind of the inductor of the broader uh, forces of the social field um, in, into a family, and therefore the way that the child is uh, raised. 
um, there was a passage I was reading later. It is from much later in, in Anti-Oedipus, but I, I can find it. Um, yeah, so they actually get pretty explicit about this later. Um, and please, if I'm going off, <coughs> off topic for what you, <coughs> sorry, what you're actually trying to say, just let me know. But um, so what they say is that um, private persons are images of the second order, um, images of images. That is similar equivalent of us endowed with an aptitude for representing the first order images of social persons. These private persons are formally delimited in the locus of the restricted family as father, mother, and child. And then they go on to say that um, the father, mother, and child thus become the simulacrum of the images of capital, Mr. Capital, Madame Earth, and the child, the worker, with the result that these images are no longer recognized at all in the desire that is determined to invest only their simulacrum. The, f the, the familial determinations become the application of the social axiomatic. So I don't, again, I don't know how that relates to um, foreclosure. It's not a concept I understand very well. Um, but maybe maybe that's um, what we're on about in terms of the family as an inductor. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of interesting you read that because it, it kind of shows that we're going to get into wilder and wilder territory as we keep going here. Oh, yeah. I mean, chapter three, chapter three for me is where it gets really interesting, um, because, you know, if their whole thesis is that um, private sort of private individual oppression is sort of determined by the social field, then you're going to have to do a pretty good job explaining what that social field is like, right? Um, which is what we spend in like 150 pages doing, something like that. It's really interesting. Yeah, I, I kind of, I kind of wonder whether this is any of this has been absorbed into sociology. Whether sociology has ever gotten around to losing Victoria or not. Uh, Latour, basically. Bruno, oh, okay. Latour, Bruno Latour is basically all the losing category. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I thought so when I was reading him. I thought this is this whole uh, act, you know, agent network theory. Uh, seems like, you know, basically the same thing, only kind of made more concrete. Oh, well, I think his his later work is more obvious about it. So I oh, okay. actually did not really, I haven't actually read anything by him before the 90s. So I only know his later stuff. Oh, um, I see. And the, there, he's really uh, just saying it. Oh, okay. Did you read Reassembling the Social? No, not yet. I'm currently rereading um, We've Never Been Modern. And um, oh, okay. you'll find a lot of uh, Deleuzian concepts there. Oh, okay. Yeah, I haven't read that. I'd like to read. Okay, um, that was... Sorry. But, uh, about the inductors and organizers, um, so I read it as uh, that the difference is basically that um, organizers really determine the structure of the outcome, right? So organizers organize what happens. They relate the um, uh, the parts to uh, to another so that they form some kind of network or structure or 
a whole. They really, really they really build the relations, and the inductors only give some inputs, and then the parts arrange themselves. So um, the inductors are, as they they say on page eighty one, um, inductors. The nature of these inductors is a matter of indifference. Many different kinds of substances and materials, when killed, boiled, and pulverized, have the same effect. Right. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And there's, there's another passage I just found. It's, it's almost directly after what I was just reading. Um, they say, uh, Everything is reduced to the father-mother-child triangle, which reverberates the answer daddy-mummy every time it is every time it is stimulated by the images of capital. In short, Oedipus arrives. It is born in the capitalist system of the application of first-order social images to the private familial images of a second order. It is the aggregate of destination that corresponds to an aggregate of departure that is socially determined. It is our intimate colonial formation that corresponds to a form of social sovereignty. We are all little colonies, and it is Oedipus that colonizes us. So that's sort of how I read. It's a great line, um, but it's, it's also how I read the idea of, of inductors. It's less that they um, formally or like in any kind of intentional way structure the family. It's just that um, in a in a kind of causal way, um, the structure of those familiar relations really are just um, uh, the the corresponding structure of, of capital itself. And so what the inductors do is they sort of simply let in or allow to replicate um, those structures, which is why Deleuze and Guattari also have a kind of role for, um, if, I can, if I'm allowed to use the word, agency here, um, because as Guattari, I was reading Three Ecologies earlier, um, he thinks that a lot of what's, what needs to happen for the left um, is going to be this kind of micro-political struggle. It's going to be how we arrange our own lives and our own communities and things, um, uh, our family relations, our social relations, these, these sorts of areas, which, which I suppose makes sense if you consider it in that way. Um, they, you know, the family in this, in this way is sort of letting in or allowing to reproduce these social relations. Um, then there's something to be there's something to be done there politically, I suppose. Yeah, the the kind of, uh, you know the the difference between organizer and inductor is kind of like uh, you know the parent telling the child what to do, and then maybe not doing that themselves, versus leading by example. The inductor is more leading by example. In other words, the parent goes about their own business and the child sees how that is and maybe mimics it rather than being told exactly by the parent what to do and then ha having to deal with the contradiction that the parent isn't doing what they say. Well, yeah. There's also, I, I thought of it more like that there's an organizer would um, deny the possibility of the child not doing what the parent says, right? Like, 
in Inductor, you tell the child to do something and the um, and the child will do something, but you don't know whether what the child does is actually what you told them to do. Mm -hmm. Well, another another example is like uh, yes, no questions versus open ended. You know, when you ask an open-ended question, you know you don't know what the response is going to be. Whereas if you, you know, you can ask questions that are very specific, and then that's going to get a very specific response. So you're organizing what the response is in the question versus just opening up, you know, a realm in which a whole lot of things could come out. <coughs> And then, and then that, that's related back to this major theme in Heidegger, which is, uh, you know, letting something be, kind of uh, having reticence where you kind of withdraw and let the thing be uh, whatever it, it turns out to be rather than, you know, controlling the, what, what does appear. So, um, to connect this a bit to what's going on in chat right now, I think we could go um, back to foreclosure for a moment. Because sure. I think, um, something that we kind of ignored talking about up to now is how, uh, why they talk exactly about foreclosure. <laughs> well, they, they are very clear about the problem in this first sentence of our section here. They say, in this case, as in many others, the utilization of the Lacanian concept of foreclosure leads to the forced Oedipalization of the rebel. The absence of Oedipus is interpreted as a lack with regard to the father, a gaping hole in the structure. So they are not they are not utilizing um, foreclosure themselves here in this text. They analyze how foreclosure is used in Lacanian psychoanalysis. And what it does is that ena it enables psychoanalysis to problematize both the over-identification with, um, with uh, the father as well as the uh, as not identifying with the father. That's the double bind. Mm -hmm. um, you can't escape Oedipus. If you are too deep in Oedipus, you are, uh, have a problem. If you, do not, uh, if you are not in Oedipus or claim to be not in Oedipus, then you just foreclosed the father, right? He's there, but you can't see him. <laughs> That's foreclosure. So... Right. So come. Uh, so do we. Uh, so uh, so um, does foreclosure connect to the double bind? I think does this that makes sense. That makes sense to me. Um, that that would be a kind of double bind, right? Um, and Deleuze and Guattari do talk about something like this. So you may all be right, but they're thinking of something like this disclosure there, where um, you know the, the problem is either you um, you know you submit and internalize Oedipus, but even that's still an ongoing you know process. You can't you know, complete, or if you, you know, um, push back and refuse to uh, internalize it, uh, you foreclose it, um, you're even more in need of correction, right? So it's a, it's a double line again, I suppose. Yeah, I think uh, you said internalize, 
Uh, and I think that's that's the other term, incorporation and internalization. And what's weird right. about the Freudian use of that is that incorporation is to absorb the thing without uh, without a problem, whereas internalization is to internalize something which should be foreign and needs to be pushed out again. And it, it always seemed to me that those two terms, at least in the English, should be the opposite. But anyway, I, I just never liked that uh, terminological difference. But, but I mean, you can see that, you know, the, um, the, the person who does everything that his father wants him to do, you know, that's one response. And then the person who who fights, you know, whatever his father wants uh, and rebels against it, that's the other. But the, the rebellion brings the system down. On and, and in some way, this is a nihilistic situation because, you know, there can be problems at both ends of the, that extreme. And, and, and most people are in the middle somewhere. They rebel sometimes and they they do what society wants to do in other cases. <clears throat> I just like to mention that, you know, in my kind of an own analysis of the Western worldview, this is the major, the major thing that the Western worldview is creating is nihilism in all areas of life. And so, and so this is, this is like, um, this whole problem of nihilism. You know, there is some philosophical literature on it, but I think it's a bigger issue than, than the literature might suggest. Funnily enough, I actually, when I first applied to do my, my PhD, probably about three years ago now, um, that was actually the project I proposed doing. <laughs> um, what you just said, Kevin, was sort of an examination of the kind of um, uh, almost structural uh, problems which presented nihilism as a as, as an existential problem. I also think that's what Nietzsche was doing in his own way as well. I think Nietzsche's entire project was um, fundamentally an attack on nihilism um, because he saw it as sort of the necessary outcome of a particular Western worldview which was starting to set in. Um, yeah, so I think I think you're right. I was just going to read again. I'm sorry for reading stuff from later in the book. It's just this this this, this bit does come back to what we were just talking about. It's also one of my favourite passages in the entire book. Um, it's a little it's a little bit long, but but you, you'll see when I come towards the end of it exactly why it's relevant. I think. Quote. The extreme spiritualization of a despotic state and the extreme internalization of a capitalist field define bad conscience. So he's getting Nietzsche in here again. The latter is not cynicism's contrary. It is in private persons the correlate of the cynicism of social persons. All the cynical tactics of bad conscience, just as Nietzsche and then Lawrence and Miller analyzed them to arrive at a definition of civilized European man. The hypnosis and array of images, the torpor they spread, the hatred of life and all that is free, all that passes and flows, the universal effusion of the death instinct. 
depression and guilt used as a means of contagion. The kiss of a vampire. Aren't you, aren't you ashamed to be happy? Follow my example. I won't let you go until you say it's my fault. Um, the permissive structure. Let me receive, deceive, rob, slaughter, kill, but in the name of a social order, and so Daddy Mummy will be proud of me. The double direction given to resentment. The turning back against oneself and the projection against the other. The father is dead. It's my fault. Who killed him? It's your fault. It's the Jews, the Arabs, the Chinese, all the resources of racism and segregation. The abject desire to be loved, the whimpering of not being loved enough and not being understood, concurrent with the reduction of sexuality to the dirty little secret, this whole priest's psychology. There is not a single one of these tactics <clears throat> that does not find in Oedipus its land of milk and honey, its good provider. Nor is there a single one of these tactics that does not serve and develop in, in psychoanalysis with the latter as the new avatar of the ascetic ideal. So, so I've something else. I just love that passage, um, but I think it does actually. We were, we were talking earlier, right, about I think I, someone mentioned the idea of sort of the death of the father um, and how that gets sort of um, uh, what the response to that is, right? Um, this is basically what I just read is how I think it ends up working. Um, in you know today is is you know um, the father is dead it's my fault who killed him and the first response is it's your fault it's the jews the arabs the chinese racism and segregation um and that's that's sort of the tying up the sort of psycho sort of the individual psychoanalytic side of it to to the social forces as well um in terms of what sort of the, the death of the father um looks like a means and engenders i suppose what page was that on uh, yeah, so um, I'm I'm gone. I'm on the Bloomsbury edition, but it's page three zero eight on my one. Um, it's basically two or three pages before chapter four starts on introduction to schizoanalysis. So if you just find the start of chapter four and go like four or five pages back from oh, there. Okay. Yeah, that's really that's really a great quote. Well, I'm glad to get these previews of what's to come because it it's gotten <laughs> to the point where we're feeling like we're just plotting through this. Uh, uh, in a way, you know, because this is a long chapter and we couldn't read it in one setting, kind of, yeah. you know, a little bit feel like we're we're stuck here. But I, I, well, since you're uh, interested in uh, problem of nihilism, I just mentioned the insight that I had when I was doing my dissertation on this, which was um, that nihilism and emergence are related to each other um, and so and so the the the, the thing is that uh, nihilism is like the background on which emergence appears so it's the too dark on which the too light appears and so the emergent thing comes along and you think like like when when the uh, initially when the uh, the World Wide Web became a thing, and then everyone said, "This is going to solve all of our problems." Yeah. And then, and then, and then we got uh, pornography. We got uh, hackers. We got viruses. We got, you know. So, you know, I mean, it starts off. The emergent event seems like it's it's uh, it's it's light coming in to, uh, you know into the darkness to illuminate everything in a new way. 
But then, but then you find out that 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 new thing is an intensification of nihilism, not 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 something that's going to save you or give redemption. Or yeah, there's a part I was reading earlier by uh, in in Qatari's three ecologies where he said um, basically that um, the entire um, entertainment uh, media complex. It really comes down to a kind of uh, distraction technique to help people sort of forget <clears throat> about this um, more fundamental um, uh, problem they're facing and to just keep people distracted, um, which I thought was a really interesting way. And obviously, we're, we're, thank you for mentioning, we don't, we don't want to mine and Ken's discussion to sidetrack us too much, but... Um, it, yeah, I mean, Deleuze and I both do have these concerns in this book. Um, and I think that's that's where you kind of get this ethical dimension to it as well. If I, again, if I can sort of use that word with a book like this. Um, because uh, I'm going to do it again. I've gone, I'm going to give you a little taster again. Um, <clears throat> just because one of the things they're going to say is that the fundamental axiomatic of previous societies was... Uh, these various sort of systems of codes, codes and um, uh, traditions and so on, and that the only axiomatic of capitalism is essentially money. And what it does is it reduces everything down to um, a single line of equivalence, um, which Gattai then expands on in the three ecologies to say that that's exactly what happens with the natural world and the environment, right? Um, is that it's all placed in a chain of equivalence, um, and then presumably there's as usual, one despotic signifier, um, presumably just uh, money or capital, right? <laughs> well, part of that is using the environment as resources and just, you know, st you know stealing those resources from the community, uh, taking them from the planet, but then selling them to make, you know, to make lots of money. So. It's not. It's not just capital. It's also resources, and that's kind of what's become the problem. Yeah, I mean that's that's sort of what Heidegger says, right? In the question concerning technology, that the thing about technology is what what it what it, what it really does is it frames everything as a kind of um, standing reserve, or something which could potentially be be used, and exploited, and transformed. Sure. We were allowed a little bit of Heidegger without Deleuze, I think. <laughs> yeah. So, um, anyway, we're open to uh, anyone else has some other questions they'd like to talk about or any, some other particular part of the text that they'd like to discuss. You know, we'd, we'd like to do that. Also, if anyone wants to be unmuted, sorry, I mean, I, um, just, just put a message in there, we'll, we'll get you unmuted, it's fine. Well, I went through and unmuted everyone before. Oh, here's another. Some people have. Yeah, in the reviews, you know, people are supposed to be unmuted so that they can just speak. Yeah, everyone's now unmuted on this end. So um, if anyone wants to jump in, that's absolutely fine. How about plenty? Do you have any anything to contribute? We are still on consumption consummation, but uh, 
Damn it, Kent. I was trying to. <laughs> I asked it in the text chat so I could sort of pretend that I knew what I was doing when I got involved in this recap session. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, oh, no mics. No mic. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, so, in this one on consumption consummation, um, I find it a strange but interesting one. Like, for, for me, I've said this before a few times, but um, I can't help but just see it as a kind of recapitulation of Nietzsche um, in terms of what subjectivity is. Um, it, it, you know, who you are at any given moment is essentially the, um, the contingent outcome of the interplay of various different wills within you. Um, and we experience it sort of is Jack here? No, he's not. Okay, so he's not going to take me to task about me using the word after effect. Um, but <laughs> but um, subjectivity essentially is an after, after effect. That's what they're kind of trying to get at in this in this uh, section. Um, you don't, you know, control the intensities. You're not responsible for them. Um, your site kind of this thing, which only really exists through the consumption of those intensities. Um, which doesn't mean we don't, I don't, I don't think, I've done some reading since I last thought about this. I don't think Deleuze and Guattari are going to want to say that we don't have sort of, um, in some sense, in some sense, um, free will. They're not really hard determinists in that sense. Um, even in, even on a sort of macro sort of metaphysical level. I think they'd go with Bergson on that one. I, I can't I can't really um, recapitulate uh, yeah you know what I mean Bergson's whole argument but um, he makes a very strong case of abandoning the whole um, distinction between determinism and free will yeah and, and it, that sort of emerged a little bit in the analytic side as well um it's called uh, compatibilism i think right where um there's these positions like determinism like there's hard or soft determinism and then there's libertarianism i suppose as a sort of free will uh view and a compatibilist compatibilist is someone who believes that there is this kind of mechanically hard determinist view but it's just not incompatible with free will which always struck me as a that one always struck me as a little bit of um yeah, that'll be probably my my my, my mic. Sorry, <laughs> I live in the countryside. Um, that one that one struck me as a cop out, but that's not really what Bergson's going on about, from what I remember. Um, it's just that the traditional idea of free will um, doesn't really hold to scrutiny. I don't think that's that's his idea, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it has his conception of time. Um, he his. I, I can't do it uh, so um, not in English and on not not um, from from the top of my dome. Yeah, I, I've been reading a book um, called uh, "Apprehending the Inaccessible" by Aske and Fukuhar. And I'm finding that really interesting. Uh, they're bringing up a lot of things I hadn't heard of before. And one of them is the, uh, the connection between Freud and Schopenhauer and how both of them terminus that don't believe in free will. So I, I, I guess I'm not sure where uh, 
Deleuze and Guattari come down on that yet? I haven't seen that in the text so far. But, you know, if you just look at it from the point of view of complexity theory, then, you know, with emergence, you get, uh, you know, determinism is kind of like assuming that you can't open up into an emergent space that's different from where you're in. So if you're determined at one level, when you, when you open it up into this emergent space, then there's freedom in that level that doesn't exist down at their level. So freedom and determination is a more complex thing than, you know, usually it's given credit for because there's these different emergent levels. And at the different emergent levels, there's going to be freedom at each at each level and determination at that level. It's freedom from the level before, but determination by the rules of the new rules at the new emergent level. But I'd just like to mention on page 92, this statement, uh, <coughs> you know, the operation of the unconscious upon itself. <coughs> Basically, the sentence is, but believing is an operation of consciousness or pre-conscious nature, an extrinsic, an extrinsic perception rather than an operation on consciousness itself. So, you know, I mean, I think these syntheses we're talking about, passive syntheses are, you know, seen as these operations of consciousness on unconsciousness on itself. <clears throat> and that's completely different than the faculties in difference and repetition, because those faculties are conscious. Well, yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, as far as I can see, this is what um, they are talking about, the unconscious here, um, I think. <laughs> but um, I guess the idea would be that the unconscious through this third synthesis is what gives rise to consciousness, right? Um, there's a kind of primary um, a drive going on there, I suppose. And, and it, <coughs> it's interesting that. Uh, to take it back to Simondon, you know, you've got the pre-individual, you've got the trans-individual, and then you've got the individual, which is between it, which, you know, I associate with the body without organs. But the, 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 the individual is maintained by these dynamics of the trans-individual and the pre-individual or the, or the desiring machines and the socius. There's, there's operations that occur there that maintain the individual as a, as a determinate, discrete thing. Um, and uh, and so, but but those operations are more or less unconscious. And so, and so it seems you know, and that's where the passive syntheses come in. That that on the desiring machine level, you have these three syntheses, kind of in the micro, uh, at the micro level, and then you have them operating at the macro level as well. But those unconscious syntheses, as passive syntheses give rise to the individual, and then the individual can act. And, they, and uh, Simone Dunn calls that uh, individualization rather than individuation. And so right. that in that process of individualization, the individual is acting and is conscious based on what it's given from the unconscious. But the unconscious is both 
these pre-individual things and trans-individual things that are not the focus of its awareness, but always have to be operating there in order to maintain the individual um, as something that 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 continues to happen in time. Sorry, I'm just having a read, a read, a read through again of just a few passages here um, from this section. So it's one I wanted to find to bring up. Um, so just bear with me. <laughs> sure. I mean, just while you're doing that, you know, I mean, just mention this uh, paragraph at the, the end of page 92, um, where he talks about Foucault. And, uh, you know, to me, that the, uh, the most interesting thing about that paragraph is the last, the last sentence, which it says, luminous pages. You know, that is high praise. You know, you, you they, they, they hardly ever say anything like that. Yeah, although I think later Deleuze and Foucault fell out a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. It's partly partly over, personal over, reasons, over, but like over things completely outside of their work. I mean, yeah, well, so I mean, yeah, it, it, it was, was a social it was political, thing, and, they, and they and they had a disagreement over the utilization of the term desire. That's basically what it was. And, but uh, yeah, I think the. The utilization of the history of madness here helps crystallize um, crystallize the point about uh, familialism in psychoanalysis and the the role of that, that we've had this whole discussion today about um, the family as not just like an instantiation of social relations within capital, but like an actual engine too. Yeah, we, just to mention that we're we're having a reading of uh, madness and civilization over on the Continental Philosophy server. <clears throat> Did you find what you were looking for, Matt? Um, I think I think I roughly found it um, because uh, in in the Holland the Holland text is actually really really useful. If anyone here is not using it, they. They should be, um, and I think contained <clears throat> towards the end of this chapter, one of the one of the sort of five prologisms of of psychoanalysis. I'm just trying to find sort of the really you know the, the one sentence which kind of explains it, um, and maybe this is one in one of them at least. Um, which in my copy is page one hundred twenty three, which is just a few pages before the end. Um, Whence the magical formula that characterizes by univocalization, the flattening of a polyvocal real in favor of a symbolic relationship between two articulations. So that is what this meant. Everything is made to begin with Oedipus by means of explanation, with all the more certainty as one has reduced everything to Oedipus by means of application. I think I think that's one of their one of their major um, uh, critiques, and I wasn't sure if maybe you know earlier before I joined in we'd sort of uh, talked about that. Part of the problem with the way they write this, uh, I think it was uh, maybe Taylor pointed out to me last week that actually when you read the book in the original French, um, they don't actually have any of these subheadings, at least as I do in my copy. It was all just written as three, four big chapters. Uh. But one of the problems is that they kind of interweave their explanation of how the unconscious actually works with their critiques of 
um, how psychoanalysis makes illegitimate use of these syntheses. So that it's not always clear, um, you know, if they're sort of ex sort of uh, doing descriptive work or critical work at any given moment. Um, but here, there was an interesting moment here because they, they talk about this later. I just realized that yeah, they, they make use of this phrase. Um, but, but they say um, it can be applied to everything in the agents and relations for social production and the libidinal investments corresponding to them are made to conform to the figures of familial reproduction. In the aggregate of departure, there is the social formation, or rather the social formations. The races, the classes, the continents, the peoples, the kingdoms, the sovereignties. Joan of Arkham, a great Mongol, Luther and the Aztec servant. In the aggregate of destination, there remains only daddy, mummy and me. So they say that it, you know, it must be said that Oedipus, as well as design production, it's at the end, not at the beginning. Um, so that's another, that's another one of their, their critiques of, 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 of psychoanalysis here. And I wanted to just bring it up on the recording in case that was something people, you know, um, haven't covered yet or maybe missed. Uh, um, it's sort of prologism of, of application, the way in which it's used in this way. Um. Something I'd like to mention in the next paragraph, <clears throat> after the Foucault paragraph, after luminous pages, uh, it says, let, let us add by enveloping the illness in the familial complex internal to the patient than the familial complex itself. In the transference and the doctor-patient relationship, Freudian psychoanalysis is made a somewhat intensive use of the family. So, you know, when I, when I read, uh, you know, when I read this, whenever they talk about enveloping, that to me is an indication that they're talking about wild being. And, uh, but here, the, the kind of point is that the, the edible complex, you know, is, is used in Freudian analysis, and, and the way I think about it is it's used to deflect blame. Like, for instance, karma in uh, India. Karma is there to deflect, gain, deflect blame from the god. Right? If, if, if it basically says it's all your fault. In a previous life, you did something wrong. And so whatever is yeah. happening to you now is your fault in a previous life. So don't, don't, uh, don't say, don't say, don't think it's the gods that have caused it. And whereas, uh, whereas here, they really are saying, no, again, like, I think they're going to say that this really is your fault, right? This is this is what Deleuze and Guattari talking about the passage I read earlier about the double the double pincer movement towards uh, resentment um, mm -hmm. that um, it, it, it inculcates a kind of bad faith um, in the individual. I think I think that's what they're going to want to say. Well, I, the way I see it is that the, the the whole you know the patriarchal system in the West. You know, psychoanalysis is using edipalization to uh, distribute blame for for madness, and they're they're distributing the blame to the family. 
So it's not right. it's it's not the social institutions that are at fault for madness. It's the it's the family. Right. And there's something I was something I was reading earlier. I don't I think it might have been in Guitar Week's three ecologies, but it might be elsewhere. If it if it is, I'll I'll find it for for the, for the chat. But but he, it wrote that um there's this evolution in Freud's thought, um, which you can observe, you know, for these publications, which it shifts from at the start being that um this kind of edible complex complex is the fault of um, of the, the parents essentially uh, in his early writings. Towards at the end, that it is essentially the child which stands trial before the judges who are the parents. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and I'll see if I can find that. I think it might have been three ecologies, but um, there would be a moment there. It, it could be oh, interesting. That's, that's cool if that's true, because that that's saying that okay. We're going to distribute the fault to the parents, and then now the parents are going to distribute the fault to the child. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like that. Um, I think it was. Yeah, it was just saying that you know, in Freud's early writing, the fault lies lies largely with the parents. But the, you know, towards his later writing, um, he, he's changed the view that you know it's essentially the child um, child's fault, and that um, uh, they're almost but that, but just that sort same, of. The same dynamic is taking place between Freud and Adler too, right? Like. Like Freud is is laying the blame um, at the feet of the parents, and then Adler is kind of shifting it back to the developmental behaviors of children. Yeah, maybe I, I don't know Adler well enough to. I mean, his his thing was, uh, you know, he was kind of directly taking Nietzsche's will to power and and using yeah. that as a yeah. psychoanalytic concept. Does it, does anyone here know know much about Adler? I'm afraid that's an area that I'm weak. So I think this distribution of blame. It, so what it means is that no structural changes is going are going to take place, and then this is kind of the critique of the bourgeoisie that um, basically they're they're living their best life and. You know, if if the other people have to suffer because of that, they, they they're not going to make any structural changes that are against their best interests. So I'm not sure. I'm going to have any other thoughts on um, this specific chapter, but there was something which made me it made me think about which um, I wrote a few tweets about this a few days ago, and I figured it was worth um, saying just. You know, for the sake of people sort of seeing where I'm coming from, or where I, where I think Deleuze and Guattari are coming from, which is that, in a sense, the title anti-Oedipus um, can be misleading, because, and I think this is one of the only ways of making sense of their relationship with Lacan in particular, but the basic idea is that Freud didn't invent Oedipus, um, they're very clear about that, um, it's fundamentally, you know, the only way in which uh, this is ever going to work out in terms of a social formation. Um, what they're really trying to do, particularly with Lacan, is to historicize it, to relentlessly historicize it. That's a fundamental point. Um, not to show that he's entirely wrong per se, because they say, and we've read it so far multiple times in the chapters we've read together as a group, that um, 
society really is oedipalized, right? The the patient arrives in the psychoanalyst's room pre-oedipalized, right? <laughs> um, the point isn't to sort of say that no Freud is wrong. This isn't how individuals today uh, operate or society operates. Um, it's to say that one it hasn't quite brought itself to this kind of historicist auto critique in a way that Marx did with uh, Smith, for example. Um, and so that was something I wanted to sort of um, repeat vocally rather than just through a, uh, a tweet, um, <laughs> because I think it can be misunderstanding, right, that this is just a sort of full-out assault on um, Freud and Lacan, and it isn't. Um, they think that if Freud hadn't said what he said, someone else would have said it as well, because that's just, you know, how it works. Um, but the point then is to historicize it and to show how this form, these forms of psychic repression are rooted in a determinate social um, uh, field um, and therefore to locate in sort of political, economic and historic terms the way in which this uh, arose and then also to show how that therefore makes it um, amenable to, uh, to change, right? How we can sort of de-edipalize, how we can become anti-edipal. Yeah, my question then would be, how do we apply that same framework to anti-Oedipus as it relates to later pages where they're discussing the role that sociologists and anthropologists play in Oedipalizing other cultures? Like, I, I'm thinking back to, like, the early Calastres uh, meeting. I'm, I'm thinking about, like, uh, savage, savages, barbarians, and civilized men. Like, in there, they specifically state that, like, there's an entire, like, academic uh, uh, body of individuals who are like now trying to oedipalize other kind of quote-unquote prehistorical uh, social organizations. Um, you know, so I, I, I'm just wondering how you, how you would apply that same concept of it. it's there, right? It's present, but now we're also trying to find it in other places. And when and what D&G say is that when we're doing that, we're actually just positing it there. We're not finding it there. We're positing it. Yeah, um, and that's because they think that it's a, it's a, uh, a, a sort of a form of, uh, of desire, a kind of repressed or displaced desire um, specific to um, the kinds of um, Western capitalist countries that, uh, that it's, it's arisen in. Um, uh, but, but, but they're also going to want to say that, um, you know, as you, as you said, that um, in a sense, yes, the patient already arrives at a place in a, in a, in a way, right, to the patient, to the psychoanalyst's uh, sofa. But what psychoanalysis also does, and they're going to say this about anthropology and sociology as well, um, is that it, 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 it encourages a kind of Oedipal imperialism as well. Um, and so that's why they're also really, really critical psychoanalysis. Um, because it participates, replicates, and worsens this uh, process when really we need to be finding ways of resisting or attacking it. Um, which is why, for example, you know, you, you might have heard all sorts of funny stories about um, Gattabi in his time at uh, Laborde. And one, one story I heard is that um, if any of the patients uh, formed like monogamous relationships, um, he would essentially go around breaking them up <laughs> um, because he was worried that they were becoming edipalized into, you know, into the triangle again. Um, and he wouldn't let any of his sort of workers marry or anything like that. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily true, but it could be sort of an urban myth. Um, but I, I think those two things aren't, they're not necessarily intention to say that um, 
you know, on one hand, they're clearly very critical of psychoanalysis and, and, and um, the Oedipal complex. Um, but they're also going to want to say, I think, that it's um, psychoanalysis didn't invent it. Um, but it will, it will uh, reproduce it, strengthen it, and force it on others as well. Um, absolutely. Just to um, just to connect this back to our earlier discussion, I think this is really at the core um, of the start of our section here, because what they point out here again, they have pointed out earlier, um, is that the problem with psychoanalysis is that it suspects Oedipus is there even if it is even if it isn't or even if it isn't visible. Right, that's the point yeah. where they talk about foreclosure, and then they go on in the section to, to the section about organizers and, um, and 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 inductors to um, find a way to talk about Oedipus or structuring principles like Oedipus that doesn't presume um, that it's there in its absence. If that makes sense. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. What, what, one of the things that I'd like to mention <coughs> that I've mentioned before is this book by Gao called Oedipus Philosopher. <coughs> and uh, in that book, he points out that that Oedipus is an anomaly in relationship to the uh, monomyth of the hero's initiation. And so, you know, when you look at it within its mythic context, uh, it's, it's just interesting that uh, what's, been, what's focused on is this anomaly rather than the, <clears throat> the initiation myth of the hero itself, which is the more general thing which is, uh, you know, prevalent in the, in the mythology. And then, <clears throat> and then another point is that, you know, in colonialization, uh, basically the, 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 the colonists, you know, treat the, treat the indigenous people they've taken over and are exploiting as children. And so that that in colonialization, that's the way the Oedipalization uh, is enforced onto cultures that probably don't have it, say if they're matriarchal. So is there uh Matt's had to leave us? Uh or anyone else would like to discuss any other issues in the text? I think this might be the uh the time to to get uh, Craig out of here so that we can have some sort of concise stopping point. I think right there is a good place to do it. So I'm going to ask Craig to leave. But if anybody has one last comment that they want to uh, to put in uh, to put in before I turn him off, speak now or forever wonder.